Well, we began a series of studies last week on the book of Philippians, and we asked the question, how do you measure the quality of our spiritual life? Uh, we may measure uh, spiritual quality by our actions and our words. Uh, do our words and our actions line up? If we, if we say that we love God, do we, do we live that way? As we saw last week, James said that we show our faith by our works. Faith without works is a dead faith. Living faith always produces something. Jesus said we would be known by our fruit. Uh, Solomon said way back in the Old Testament that, uh, that even a child is known by his doings. And so we recognize people by what they are, by how they live, by how they relate to others. Now, we look at their choices, we look at their decisions, we, we measure their spiritual lives by seeing if their words and their actions line up. And there's a lot of value in that observation. But then we also suggested last week going even a step deeper to examine an issue of the heart, uh, because our choices and our decisions all flow from our hearts. So it's worthwhile to measure the quality of our Christian life by examining what we love. What we love reveals what's in our hearts, as we saw when we looked last week at Jesus' words to the Pharisees in Matthew 15, 7 to 9, when he said, he said, you, you honor me with your lips, but he said, your heart is far from me. So Jesus is saying that it is apparently very possible to know the right things and to know the right things to say, but still have a heart that's very far from God. That's why when we examine our hearts before the Lord, we ask ourselves, what do I love? What gives me joy? What do I delight in? What am I glad about? What gives me contentment and satisfaction? And last week I read you a long list of scriptures where the, where, where the Bible gives us these instructions on how to measure the quality of our spiritual walk by what we love, by what gives us satisfaction and fulfillment, what gives us joy as we walk through this life. Serving the Lord should be at the top of the list, we said. Remember our verse from Psalm 100, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. And we read many, many other texts that say similar things. And if you were with us last week or you have listened to it at some point along the way, remember that when the Bible speaks of joy, it's not referring to an attitude that depends on our circumstances. People all over the world are chasing happiness, but they are looking for it in their circumstances. If I have the right job, if I have the right friends, if I make the right amount of money, if I have the house I want, if I'm healthy, if I have enough time off work to enjoy my favorite leisure activities, if my kids aren't giving me grief, if my spouse isn't driving me nuts, if everything is how I have always hoped it will be, then maybe I can be happy. And my entire life is wrapped up in figuring out how I can get the circumstances of my life lined up so I feel good about everything. And you don't have to live very long before you realize that if you're chasing happiness based on your circumstances, then deep abiding happiness is virtually impossible to find because our circumstances in this sin-cursed world will never be exactly right. There has to be another approach. 
And, and we who know the Lord Jesus Christ and have experienced His saving grace, we know that there's another way. It's the way of biblical joy. And the Apostle Paul speaks about this uh, all, throughout this whole letter to the Philippians. We can have an abiding sense of joy, of biblical joy, regardless of our circumstances, because true joy, we have said, is based, or true joy in Jesus is based on the confidence that no matter what is going on in our lives, all is well between us and the Lord. No matter what trial, no matter what heartache, no matter what disappointment, no matter what rejection, what health issue, what financial setback, or whatever challenge we may be facing, we know, if you know Christ as your Savior, we know that we are safe in the arms of God's grace, and our eternal well-being has been secured by the Lord Jesus. So regardless of what the external circumstances are, we can know that, that we, we have this abiding sense of joy because all is well between us and the Lord. Now last week we saw five elements of true joy, all related to Paul's relationship with the Philippians. True biblical joy, not only a reflection of our relationship with the Lord Jesus, it's also a reflection of our relationship and our service to fellow followers of Christ. And those five elements of joy we shared with you last Sunday, the joy of remembering, the joy of intercession and fellowship and confidence and love, all those elements of biblical joy have an outward focus. They are, they are focused on other people because a focus on self will never bring us to a place of biblical joy. What we love will determine in large part what sort of, sort of joy we experience as we walk through uh, this life. And as we work our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians, we see this morning, in just the next few verses in chapter 1, we see another element of spiritual maturity. And that is the quality of our prayer life. Let's read these verses, uh, verses 9, 10, and 11. Just those three verses this morning. Philippians 1 9, 10, and 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. Paul was a godly man of mighty prayer. His prayer for the Colossian believers, if you read the book of Colossians, he said, I pray that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in all things, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, and he said, I give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in my prayers. He told Timothy, I remember you in my prayers night and day. He told Philemon, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. He told the Philippians the same sort of thing here in verse 3 of chapter 1. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine making request for you with all joy. And those are just a few of Paul's statements about prayer and praying. Prayer and praying is all over Paul's letters to churches and individuals. Prayer is, is obviously is a duty of followers of Jesus. Jesus himself taught us that we ought to always pray and to never give up in Luke 18.1. 
He, Paul told the Romans in Romans 12, 12, he said, be devoted to prayer. He gave the Philippians this very strong exhortation in chapter 4 that we'll look at a few weeks down the road when, when he said, pray about everything. But see, godly, mature praying doesn't just flow from a sense of duty. It flows from an inner desire. For the mature believer in Jesus, it isn't, it isn't just a spiritual requirement to pray. It is an internal passion. The mature believer wants to bring glory to God and wants to see God glorified in the lives of other believers as well. Do we finally turn to prayer after we've exhausted all of our other options? Some of you remember years ago our our missionary friend from uh, from Africa, Phil Hunt, who's been in the country of Zambia for close to thirty years now. Uh, he's a he's an acquaintance of mine, and uh, and I, uh, I I love Phil. He's a great guy. He said something in one of his prayers, uh, in one of his sermons, actually here, and I've heard him say it other places as well. And that was this. He said, "You know, with with GPS and cell phones and Visa cards, what do we need God for?" And what his point was, was that in our modern world, we have so many ways to solve our problems. So why pray? And we have become so, I mean, you, you, you know, your car breaks down, something else happens, you call a friend, you do, you whip out your cell phone, you do this, you get lost, you use your GPS, you turn on your maps app on your phone, you got, you know, you get stuck somewhere, if you got any, if, if you haven't maxed out all your credit cards, you slap something down and fix something. I mean, we, do, we have all kinds of ways to solve problems, so why should we pray? It's very unfortunate. So, so is, is prayer our first thought when troubles come? Or is prayer our last resort? Is prayer just some duty that we perform? You know, say your prayers before you go to bed tonight. Or, or, is, or, or is prayer that the, this inner desire that flows from our heart for God? Now, in our text here this morning that I just, just read to you reveals several issues of spiritual growth that Paul prayed for on behalf of the Philippians. It's a, it's a terrific model for us to follow as we pray for other people. Remember last week, Paul took great joy in, in interceding and praying for others. And, and this is what he's asking God for on their behalf. I titled our thoughts today, And This I Pray. Four areas of, of prayer that we should be praying for other people and for ourselves. The first one is this, abounding love. Paul says, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. Now everyone who is familiar with the New Testament knows that love is at the heart of Bible Christianity. The love of God for people, the love of people for God and for each other. God is love, 1 John 4 tells us. Love is from God, that same passage tells us. And all of you Whitetail Baptist Church veterans know from listening to me preach all year, all these years, that biblical love is not primarily a feeling. It is a choice. It is an act of the will. It is a decision. God loves us not because he has sentimental feelings about us because we're so nice and sweet. And he looks down and says, oh, you sweet little humans, I think I'll love you. No, that's, that's not it at all. See, we're actually a bunch of rascally sinners who deserve hell. 
And God, God chose to, or God loves us because He chose to love us, despite of what we were. Great passage in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a great thought. God, God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us, Christ loves us rather, because He chose to love us despite what we were. Love, biblical love, is an act of the will. It is a decision. It is a choice we make. Feelings may follow that, but initially it is a choice. It is a commitment. God's love is not a sentimental feeling. It is a sacrificial commitment. And that's the kind of love that Paul is praying for. That the Philippians would have Christ-like love. Sacrificial commitment that abounds, that grows and grows and grows. And this I pray, he says, that your love may abound more and more. But sacrificial commitment is like a train. It runs on two tracks. It runs, according to this passage, on knowledge and on discernment. Without knowledge and discernment, your sacrificial commitment is going to have a gigantic wreck. But now, the knowledge he's talking about is not higher education. It is a knowledge of God's Word and God's will. A Ph.D. will not give you more sacrificial commitment. It may help you in other ways, but it won't make you more godly. But increasing knowledge of God's Word will lead to an increase in sacrificial commitment because we will grow in our understanding of God's will and God's ways and God's desires and God's commands and God's character. So we need knowledge of God's Word. And then a discernment is the ability to apply the Word of God appropriately for the situation or the circumstance. Look here in Philippians 1, look at verse 12, what Paul says. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become more confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You get what Paul's driving at? He's been under house arrest for two years. Chained to a Roman soldier for two years. He can't eat without a chain to a Roman soldier. He can't sleep without being chained to a Roman soldier. He can't use the bathroom without being chained to a Roman soldier. He is chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, for 2 years under house arrest. And yet when he writes and he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out to further the gospel. What an interesting perspective. See, but Paul's, Paul's focus was not his own discomfort or his own frustration with being under house arrest for two years. His focus was on the spread of the gospel. He understood God's priorities. It wasn't about him. It was about the gospel. And, 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 and so he says, I, I want you guys to know that all the stuff that's happened to me, hey, it's just moved the gospel forward. Praise God. It's made people more bold to stand up for Jesus. He said, oh, I've been languishing here for two years under house arrest. and I just, That's not what he talked about at all. Hey, he said, you know all this stuff happened to me? It, it, it pushed the gospel forward. What did Paul have? Paul had knowledge of God's will, and Paul had discernment. 
to understand what was going on in his situation in his circumstance. Look at Romans 15 for just a moment. Hold your finger here. Look back just a few pages to Romans 15. Some of you may be familiar with this little passage. If you're not, you're about to be. If you are, it'd be a great, it'll be a great, great review. Romans chapter 15. We're just going to read the first, the first few verses. Romans 15. Maybe up to verse 7. Romans 15, verse 1. We then who are strong, he's talking about being spiritually strong. If you look at the context of chapter 13 and 14, he's talking about being spiritually strong. We who are spiritually strong ought to bear with the scruples or the weaknesses of the weak and not to please ourselves. Don't miss the power of what he's saying. He's saying that if you are spiritually strong, your job is not to please yourself. Your job is not to say, well, those poor weaklings over there, they can't handle this big deal, I can handle it. I'm spiritually strong, not too bad for them. No, Paul says, if you're spiritually strong, one of the marks of being spiritually strong is that you don't live for yourself. He said, you don't live to please yourself. If your life, if your whole spiritual life is all wrapped up in pleasing you, rather than tolerating other people's spiritual weaknesses, then you're not spiritually strong. Paul says if you're strong, then you should bear with the scruples, with the weaknesses of the weak, and not to please yourself. He goes on to say, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. He said that was the whole testimony of the Lord Jesus. Jesus did not live to make himself happy. He did not live for himself. He lived for us. He lived for others. He lived for his disciples. Look at all the crazy nonsense from his disciples that Jesus tolerated month after month after month after month after month. He said even Christ did not please himself. But as he said, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And then look down at verse 7. Therefore, he says, receive one another, meaning accept one another, just as Christ also received or accepted us to the glory of God. In other words, he says, we need, to, we need to learn to tolerate the weaknesses of people who are not as spiritually mature as we may be, because he said that's what Jesus did. That's the way Jesus lived. That's what his life was all about. He did not live to please himself. So he said, accept each other with your flaws and your weaknesses and your hang-ups and your baggage and all the other stuff that all of us have. That's why he says in verse 7, receive one another, just as Christ also received us. Thank God that Jesus didn't wait for us to try to get our act together before he saved us. Praise God, Jesus didn't look at us and say, well, you really got a lot of baggage. I'm going to kick you in the mind and get you out of the way. That's not what Jesus does to us. And so the Apostle Paul says, receive each other just like exactly the same way that Christ received us to the glory of God. 
That's what Paul's driving at when he says, This I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. That you will know the Word of God. You'll know the will of God. You'll, 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 you'll know the character of God. You'll understand the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will discern, you will be able to see God's perspective on your circumstances. Just like Paul did. I've been in jail here under, 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 waiting for my trial for two years. But he said, guess what? The gospel has moved forward because of that. Wow, that's great. <laughs> Whole different perspective, see? Because he's not living for himself. So that's the first thing that we pray for when Paul, that's the first thing, back to Philippians chapter 1. That's the first thing Paul was praying for. That's the first thing you and I should be praying for. In our lives and in the lives of other people, that their love, their sacrificial commitment will abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. Number two, correct priorities. In verse 10 he says, that you may approve the things that are excellent. The word approve means to examine and to determine. So what, you, what do you do? You, you, you look at, excuse me, you look at your life. You look at your activities, you look at your schedule, your time management, you look at your relationships, you look at your finances, you, you look at every area of your life, and you determine what your priorities should be. You determine what's actually important in this life and in eternity, and you develop correct priorities. You determine what is the best. Paul's not talking about discerning good from evil. Good from evil is generally not too hard to figure out. Paul is talking about deciding between what's good and what's best. You see, we all make dozens of decisions every day. Most of those decisions do not necessarily involve sin. But God wants us to discern and to choose what is best, not merely avoid the things that are terrible. Those spiritual priorities, when we, when we establish spiritual priorities, correct priorities, that will separate the committed from the uncommitted, and the mature from the immature spiritually, the strong from the weak spiritually, the effective from the, from the ineffective. That will be based on our priorities and the, and the choices we have made to, to, as Paul said, approve the things that are excellent. Some of you are familiar with John Piper wrote a book many, many years ago called, uh, called Don't Waste Your Life. It tells the story of two different sets of people in one of his chapters. He said, in April of 2000, Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80. She was single all her life. She had poured out her life for one great thing, he said, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a medical doctor, a widow, pushing 80 years old herself, serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. As they're driving down a country road one day, the brakes failed, the car went over a cliff, both of them were killed instantly. He said the very same, almost the very same time, the, the, there was a February edition of Reader's Digest, told a story about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs up in the Northeast. He was 59, his wife was 51. He said, now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida. Been there many times. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise in their 30-foot yacht, play softball, and collect shells. 
None of those things, those things are not inherently sinful. But Piper kind of wonders, who died with the greatest reward? Paul writes, I pray that you will approve the things that are excellent. Develop correct priorities. Figure out what is really important in life and eternity and focus on those things. Number three, a Christ-like testimony. He says that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Paul uses two beautiful adjectives in that phrase, sincere and without offense. Without offense, two English words, but it's only one word in the Greek text. He said two, two beautiful adjectives, sincere and without offense. Sincere comes from a Greek word that means tested by sunlight. In the ancient world, if, if pottery developed a crack in the firing process or the glazing process, then the crack would often be filled with wax and painted to hide the flaw. And, and a skilled craftsman, a skilled guy who could really do pottery well, if they weren't entirely ethical, they, they could make that thing look so good that you couldn't see the flaw until you took it home and put something hot in it or on it. Then, all, of course, the wax would melt and you'd see the crack. So people often, before they purchased, if they didn't have a lot of confidence in who they were buying from, they, they, they would take that plate or that pot or that vase, they would take it outside, and they would hold it up to the sun, and they'd kind of look around. And they could see in the, the sunlight, they could see the wax-filled cracks or imperfections. And so it would be sun-tested, it would be tested by sunlight to see if it's really crack-free. And so quality and reputable craftsmen in the Roman Empire, they wanted a seal to, to certify to some of their wealthy customers that they had not covered any cracks with, 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 with wax. So, of course, they didn't use the Greek word for sun test because they didn't speak Greek. They spoke Latin. And so on the back of the plate or the bottom of the vase or the pot, they would write two Latin words. Sine sera means without wax. That's where we get our English word sincere from sine sera meaning if you're sincere you're not covering things up you're the real deal we're not hiding anything we're not deceptively covering up our flaws we would call it today transparency that's what sincere is and so when paul writes that you may be sincere that you may be sun-tested, he said, that you may be without wax, that you may be the real thing, that you may be transparent in your life. The other descriptive word Paul uses, without offense, meaning that you don't, you don't drift into sin or you don't cause others to drift into sin. Pastor John MacArthur, many of, are, of you are, are familiar with him, he kind of describes that drifting process this way. He said stumbling or drifting into sin happens in stages. First, we tolerate sin in our lives. We criticize it, but we don't really take a stand against it. Then we accommodate it a little at a time till it doesn't bother us much anymore. Then we legitimize it, meaning that we make excuses for it. We rationalize why we do it. We justify in our minds why we can handle it. And then we end up participating in it. We tolerate it, then we accommodate it, then we legitimize it, then we participate in it. And he said, by that time, biblical values have become so clouded by the world's values that we can hardly tell the difference. 
Usually when we fall into sin, usually when we... It's not, it's not just crash, this big boom. It's a drift. We just kind of drift. We tolerate things we shouldn't tolerate. Then we start accommodating it. And then, and then we start justifying and rationalizing and legitimizing it. And after a while, we're right in the thick of it. See, when Paul says, I want you to be without offense, he means, I want you to be fighting that process. That don't allow yourself to drift stumbling into sin. So Paul prays for the Philippians that they'll have a Christ-like testimony without wax and without drifting. And then fourthly, he, he said, I want you to be fruit-filled for God's glory. He said, being, verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That phrase, fruits of righteousness, it's an Old Testament concept, goes way, way back. It, it, it refers to godly works produced by God's work in a person's life. It's God working through us to bless others, which then brings blessings to us. God works in our hearts, we work to serve others for His glory, and he, then He blesses us because we do. Those are, that's what the Old Testament called fruits of righteousness. And Paul says that the fruits of righteousness that I, that I want for you, Philippians, and of course by us as we, read his, as we read his letter, he said that being filled with fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ. In other words, he says those fruits of righteousness that bring glory to God, they come by Jesus Christ. They don't come from our own self-efforts. They come because we are connected to Jesus Christ. That is exactly what Jesus taught his disciples in that well-known passage in John chapter 15. If you'd flip back there real quickly, let me show you that one too. John chapter 15. The last night before Jesus Christ went to the cross, in this teaching that he gave his disciples, it's called the Upper Room Discourse. Starts in chapter 13 of John, goes all the way to the end of chapter 17, or through the end of chapter 16. Chapter 17, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Chapter 18, Judas comes with the soldiers and he's arrested. But Jesus here speaking in John chapter 15. You'll recognize one of the phrases when we get to it for sure. We're just going to read the first five verses. John 15, 1 through 5. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. By vine dresser, just means the guy who does all the pruning and the work of the, in, in, in the, the vineyard. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And here's our great, great verse here. I am the vine, Jesus says, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And boy, if you don't have this underlined or marked or memorized in your Bible, here's the phrase. For without me, you can do nothing. That doesn't mean you can't get up in the morning, take a shower and eat breakfast. He's talking about doing things of eternal value. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me and, and abide in you, you're, you're going to be fruitful. But he said, without me, you can't do anything. 
You can't do anything of eternal value. You've, you've got to be connected to Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, I want you to be filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. Without me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. The story is told that when British Colonel Thomas Lawrence, you probably never heard of him, but you probably heard of Lawrence of Arabia, based on the famous movie way back when. He's a British Colonel... Thomas Lawrence, he was kind of a World War I hero a hundred years ago. Uh, fought battles out in the deserts in Arabia and so forth. That's why they called him Lawrence of Arabia. After the war was over, after World War I, he brought some of his Arab friends that he had fought with and had bat- not fought against, but fought with together in, in battle and so forth. He brought some of his Arab friends with him to Paris uh, to, to kind of show them the sights. They, they had not ever seen any modern technology. They'd lived in the desert in tents their entire lives. They were quite impressed with some of the buildings. Lawrence tried to impress them, the tours of these major wonders of Paris. But he said the thing that interested them the, the most were, were the faucets in the, in the hotel bathrooms. They loved it just stand there, turn it on and off, turn it on and off, just... Amazed at having all the water they wanted by simply turning a handle. Of course, they lived in the desert in a tent their whole life. Never seen anything like that. Never seen indoor plumbing. Never seen those things. And so they're just, just playing with the faucets all the time in the bathroom. And when it came time to check out of the hotel and go, go back to Arabia, they weren't down in the lobby. And Lawrence goes upstairs to see where they are. And, and they're in the room trying to figure out how I can pull the faucet out of the wall. And he said... What in the world are you doing? I said, it's terribly dry in Arabia, as you know. We need one of these faucets. We just get water whenever we want. And the Lord said, no, 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 no. You don't get it. He said, he said, what makes the faucet work is not the faucet. It's this massive water system that it's connected to. And you know, some weeks, you and I are just like those guys who'd grown up in tents in the desert. We got spiritual sinks and bathtubs and showers and a bunch of faucets. We got all the apparatus. But we forget that we are absolutely nothing if we are not connected to the source. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. We got Bibles and buildings and commentaries and computers and technology and online Bible studies and all the apparatus we can possibly imagine. But if we aren't connected to the source of all things, we cannot be filled with fruits of righteousness which come by Jesus Christ for the glory of God. You know, if you really want to pray for somebody, and we should be, and if you really want to pray for yourself, then ask God by His grace to give you abounding love and correct priorities and a Christ-like testimony and the fruits of righteousness for God's glory. If we will do that, then I believe we just may see a mighty moving of God in our own lives and in our families and in our churches. Let's pray. Forgive us, Lord, for our anemic prayer lives. Challenge us, we pray, to, to greater heights and deeper passions in our times of prayer. 
Make us warriors in prayer, Lord, understanding your ways and knowing your will and believing your word as, as we intercede for those we love and for those we should love. Lord, we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.